0: Jones, Australia's leading voice.
1: Good evening, and thanks for your company. I'm Jake Thrupp, and yes, I know what you're thinking. Where is Alan, you ask? Well, he had a medical procedure on Friday and just needs another day or two to recover. It's nothing severe, so please don't worry. He's been caught up today having x-rays and other scans, so was in no position to put a program together. So here I am, filling in. You can still email him though, just email alanjones at adh.tv. These are big shoes to fill, but I've worked alongside Alan now for about five years and we'll give it a go. Fred Paul will be on in the hour after me, so make sure you stick around, where he'll be joined by the IPA's Gideon Rosner in what will be a must-watch interview. A big show planned for you tonight. We'll speak to Senator Pauline Hanson. She will now be a regular on Monday nights with Alan. We'll discuss with her Labor's proposal to introduce an Indigenous voice to Parliament. It's an issue which isn't going away. Pauline Hanson is now saying that One Nation will be the official party of the no vote. So I'm looking forward to what she has to say about all that later. I'll also speak with Queensland LNP Senator Matt Kennevan. If we had more Matt Kennevans in the National Parliament, common sense might once again become the order of the day. We'll cross to him to discuss what I think is just another lazy move by a lazy state government, and that is the Queensland government's decision to introduce a $1.2 billion hike in the rate of coal royalties, despite saying prior to the Queensland state election in 2020 that a Labor government wouldn't introduce new taxes. I mean, honestly, how can business do business in this country when politicians like Cameron Dick break promises? Suffice to say, this decision is about as popular as a headbutt and has put considerable strain on the Australia-Japan relationship. So we'll discuss all that and more right here on ADH-TV. I'm Jake Thrupp, filling in for Alan Jones. I wonder if the buyer's remorse is starting to set in for the just over 30% of Australians who voted Labor in May. I know the election was a battle between a Liberal Party who had run out of puff and were bereft of fresh ideas and a Labor Party who some would say had not learnt the lessons of the past Rudd-Gillard-Rudd-Shorten years. But nonetheless, they fell over the line. And I think many would agree their agenda is not unifying, but instead very divisive. The Albanese government needs to stop shooting on a million fronts. Not only have Australians been ambushed with symbolism and talk of nation-changing referendums, which were never discussed with the public prior to the election, we are now going to have, apparently, a jobs and skills summit. It will be held next month in Canberra. This is the chance, they say, to reach a consensus on how to deal with the economic challenges facing Australians and provide fresh recommendations. But hang on, isn't this why we have a Treasurer and a whole Treasury Department? Is Labor meaning to say that after nine years of sitting on the opposition benches, they don't have any immediate solutions to the economic problems we face? Families have been dealing with increasing cost of living pressures now for months. Motorists have been copping high petrol prices for months now. Businesses have been short-staffed and unable to find workers for months now. And yet the Prime Minister and his Treasurer, wanting to channel their inner Bob Hawke and Paul Keating, are telling us that we must wait until some summit next month before giving us the solutions. Can someone tell this lot that the economic turbulence isn't coming? It's already here. We need solutions today, not next month or the month after that. They are calling the Prime Minister Anthony Overseasy. It's a clever subriquet because thus far, it's true. Quit the overseas travel and start addressing the problems here, at home. The Prime Minister was just 11 weeks into the top job before taking a week off to go to Broome, where he was spotted kayaking, roaming art galleries and down in Sydney rock oysters on Cable Beach. What vinaigrette was on the oyster's elbow? Meanwhile, Australia's inflation rate is 6.1%, the highest recorded since 1990. Prices for food, fuel, insurance and everyday costs of living are on the up. Genuflecting to green energy and prematurely closing coal-fired power plants and pushing renewables onto the grid without implementing another reliable baseload power source like nuclear power, has jacked up bills and ships jobs offshore. And then we have the hangover from the ridiculous, over-the-top government stimulus packages from the past two years, where people were basically paid to sit at home and watch Netflix. JobKeeper cost the taxpayer an eye-watering $25 billion. Who pays? It'll be my generation and beyond. And now we are roughly a trillion dollars in debt. It's time for Labor to sober up, wake up and smell the coffee. These are the real economic issues we face now. We need solutions now, not a jobs and skills summit, especially not a jobs and skills summit, which will have a predetermined composition of 30% unions and employees. This is despite unions accounting for less than 10% of the private sector workforce an inconvenient truth for Labor and their union mates. Business types will make up another 30%. Who will they be? Probably the woke corporate types who seem more interested in virtue signalling rather than being productive. Experts, we are told, will make up another 30% of the summit. Yep, experts, whose predictions have more holes than Swiss cheese. And then the final 10% will go to the states and territories. We are told outcomes from the summit are expected to inform the Treasurer's first budget on October 25. Then there will be an employment white paper prepared by Treasury which will, quote, help shape the future of Australia's labour market, unquote. Again, why doesn't the Treasurer have any ideas on this now? Troy Brampton wrote in The Australian about this summit, quote, The Treasurer hopes participants will work cooperatively and with an open mind to achieve consensus, on some of the ways forward on the critical policy challenges facing the nation unquote he then goes on about the objectives which include quote keeping unemployment low boosting productivity and raising incomes delivering secure well-paid jobs expanding employment opportunities for all Australians unquote look you've heard enough it's just jargon non-stop jargon but i've got a question for the treasurer How on earth do you plan to achieve even half of these things with the ACTU's Sally McMenus sitting in the room? Putting her near the levers of power will cook us all. Trying to hang on to a bygone era where more than half the workforce belonged to trade unions, McMenus is arguing that wages must keep up with inflation and social benefits and income support must be fully and promptly indexed to the actual consumer prices paid by recipients. When it comes to that submission, I think everyone in the room should politely say to McMenus, thanks but no thanks. Such proposals would only fuel further inflation, not curb it. Pegging wage rises to elevated levels of inflation would lead to a wage price spiral, mixed with more interest rate rises. Labor say they want to maximise job opportunities and boost productivity. Why don't they start with tax cuts? putting more money back into the pockets of hard-working Australians. Get the pesky bureaucracy out of the way for business and industry so they can do their thing, invest and build. Urge state treasurers to scrap payroll tax, a fine for taking people off the unemployment queue. And what about introducing low-tax, low-regulation investment zones in parts of regional Australia, like northern Australia, to promote growth? Let's build dams, pipe water and irrigate land to grow things. Let's invest in nuclear power so Australia has a reliable baseload power source to boost commerce and put downward pressure on electricity prices. And what about fixing the ballooning social welfare system and get those who are able to work back into work? You don't need a summit to get started on these things. The problem we face today is that politicians are obsessed with over-analyzing reports from experts and therefore we keep missing opportunities. It's time to stop being sluggish and get the nation moving again. We don't have a second to lose. Well, keeping in routine, each Monday, Alan will now speak with Senator Pauline Hanson. So I'm glad to say she will join me in a moment. Can I just say though, here at ADH TV, whenever we post a video on our social media channels, which includes Senator Hanson and Alan, it goes off. The viewers love what she has to say. There is no denying that Pauline Hanson speaks for the silent majority. She cops a lot for daring to speak truth, no matter how uncomfortable it may be for those in the political and media establishment. We need more people like her in public life and less of the cookie cutter politicians who need others to tell them what to say and think. A few months back, I attended a dinner where Pauline Hanson was the main act and didn't she perform? Here were business people sitting around a table, peppering her with questions on all things, social welfare, getting people into work, China, the cost of living, harvesting water, indigenous affairs, her thoughts on labor, etc. She had a fluent answer for everything. And the best part was that she wasn't speaking from notes. It all came from instinct and experience. That's why now I just roll my eyes at all the pathetic attacks those in the parliament and the media level at Pauline Hanson. It's old hat. Her only crime is that she's a true believer in the Australian way of life and will do everything she can to preserve it. I've got no issues with that. We need more patriotism in this country, not less. So let's cross to Pauline Hanson. Senator, thanks for your time.
2: Oh, my pleasure, Jake. Lovely to talk with you. I hope Ellen gets well very soon.
1: Yes, we all do too. Look, just a general question to begin. You love this country, as do I. But the criticism you receive by some in the press is just relentless and at times extremely unwarranted and unfair. So my question is this. What motivates you to keep on going?
2: Jake, uh, I've been at this since 1996. You, You said it in your summing up. I'm patriotic. I love my country. You know, I try to be truthful and honest with people as a politician, their representative. I think people should expect the truth out of their politicians and um, I think that's lacking in our politics. You know, they're playing games all the time and seeing which way the wind's blowing and how the people feel without being upfront with the people. So I think that's me. And, Jake, I am so privileged to be in this position. I really am. And the people voted me back in the last election to be their voice. So it's like I'm very honoured and I have to be true to myself and I know that when my day is finishing politics I've done everything I possibly can to make this a better country to leave it for future generations. Well
1: that's right and I think many Australians respect that Pauline. You're a conviction politician but look as a young person though I watch in despair when it comes to some in my generation who want to basically burn the house down and revolutionise everything. I don't understand it because we enjoy some of the best institutions, which sure might need some reform, but ultimately are there to strengthen democracy, freedom and fairness. We've never been a more tolerant and prosperous society. Senator, when will any government in this country say enough is enough, stop with the woke education system And let's start teaching children that this is a great country.
2: Jake, I wouldn't hold my breath because (laughs) this has been changing in our system for at least the last 25, nearly 30 years. When I was elected in 1996, I had two teachers come to me from the university telling me that they had to teach a certain line of narrative, otherwise they were going to get sacked out of their jobs. This has been the socialist way, the communist way, And so over the years, our children in the educational system have been brainwashed. Even our people doing courses are being forced to learn about critical race theory. And if you don't pass and accept the way they're telling you, you won't get passed in your course. So there's fear from the young ones, but there are some one, young ones that are waking up. They do understand. They don't like the direction our country's going in because they're listening to the older generations. But a lot of them have been brainwashed. They know no better, and I can't blame them. It's up to us, the older generation, to try and teach them, this is not the country that we grew up in. It's not going to be to your benefit if we keep heading down the path of being woke, critical race theory, whine, um, too, about our history and trying to improve our future.
1: I think the, uh, I think the birds in the background agree with you, uh, Pauline. I can hear them loud. Yeah, you're right, though. We're breeding a generation of Puritans. Look, no country's history is perfect, but we do our best to right wrongs. So just on this Indigenous voice to parliament proposal, will One Nation be the party of the no vote? Oh, most definitely, Jake.
2: You know, I spoke about the Aboriginal issues when I first came into Parliament in 1996, and I keep saying to people, but we had a vote in 1967 to actually, in a referendum, so that we would include the Aboriginal people in the census, which we did. Unbeknownst to the people, in the Constitution, they changed Section 5126 of the Australian Constitution, so the government now has the right to make specific laws for any race. It's there. That in itself is a racist piece of documentation in our constitution, but it's there. They've had that ability to do that and it improved the lives of the Aboriginal people. But the way they've gone about it is totally wrong. Nothing has improved, if anything, it's got worse because those people are supposed to be, you know, bringing them up out of the squalor and the conditions and, and infant mortality and drunkenness It hasn't changed whatsoever because they're keeping these people suppressed because there is an ulterior motive to actually divide us as a nation within a nation and that's what I'm opposing because I see that as the problem with putting it in the constitution. You don't need a voice in the constitution and I believe that this has to be stopped. We have voices in parliament. I as elected member of parliament along with the other members of parliament. We have plenty, and especially there are 11 who are claiming to be part Indigenous. They are representing the Aboriginal people and the Torres Strait Islanders as well.
1: Yeah, spot on. And, look, whatever happened to fair and equal treatment for all, not advantages to anyone based on race, gender or ethnicity, you did touch on that just then, uh, that we've actually got 11 Indigenous MPs now in our National Parliament. It's a great achievement. And would I be correct in saying that those 11 Indigenous MPs, well... Ten, actually, as one seems to be a full-time activist. But those MPs would already have the concerns of Indigenous Australians front of mind when it comes to any legislation. So what's all this about?
2: Uh, look, I don't think they've done as much as they should have done. There has been no accountability of this, Jake. I keep raising this all the time. There's not enough audits done. The land, 32% of our land in Australia is on a native title. So therefore they are putting the land into into land councils. Aboriginals don't get to own their own land. Even the native title land is tied up. They can't even go onto it. I've I've spoken to ones in these communities. We, Howard, when Native Title Act came in, Howard put $45 million a year, perpetually for the rest of their history, to to allow the Aboriginals to buy up land in Australia. $1.3 billion were put into a fund, allowing them 45 million a year to buy up land, whatever they want to buy up in Australia. They've had this ability to do it. You know, what's happening in these communities is ridiculous. The health of these Aboriginals, they are not prepared to actually, you know, send their kids to school. The kids aren't educated. Their health is atrocious. Um, it is a shame because we have turned our back on this. If people did that in the white society, we would take the kids away from them, but they're frightened to do it because they will call them again the second generation of the stolen children. But are, do we really care about these kids, the way they're treated, the sexual abuse that's happening to them? Well, that's right. It's all just no, symbolism, this, isn't it? System.
1: It's all just symbolism.
2: Of course it is. Mm. It's virtue signaling going on at the moment. So anyway, that's that what they use for, we need a voice so that we can clean this up. No, you've had years and years to do this. Nothing's happened. So don't tell me that a voice to parliament is going to change anything, but cost another set of bureaucracy, more people that we're going to pay now billions of dollars to. Nothing's changed. You've got the money, you've got the, the means, you've got the people there to do it. Get, start doing something instead of, crying on about how sorry you are for yourselves and you haven't um, been acknowledged. Um, you have. But I will not be walked over and told this is not my land. I was born here. I have a right to be here. I love this country and you, are, you don't have anything um, more to own this country than I do.
1: Yep, that's right. No, uh, we've got a claim just as... Uh you know, just like everyone else to it. You're spot on. Now, look, it is a nonsensical proposal. But look, just moving on, what about these rorts in relation to the National Disability Insurance Scheme, where organised crime groups are believed to be stealing NDIS entitlements from Australia's most vulnerable? Senator, we've got agencies and bureaucrats galore. So how can this happen? The way
2: the system's been structured and I will not have Labor come out and say, oh, well, blame the coalition for this to happen. Sorry, Labor has much to blame for this as well. I've been screaming about this. I actually reported one woman who got $650,000, approximately that much money, in a year. She spent $54,000, you know, on, in a matter of days. She paid for tickets to a corporate box over $40,000 to a football match paid for by NDIS. She actually flew people out from America, her family, on private, in not private but business class. Bought alcohol. It was never thoroughly checked out. Why is that a problem? Both is that it takes all the states and the federal to actually change the legislation. The states have refused. Guess what? Coalition government, state governments. They were not working together. Hopefully now with Bill Shorten under a Labor government with the Labor states, they may start to do something about it and rein in the waste of money. You've got people on NDIS who shouldn't be on NDIS. You've got people charging nearly $200 an hour for services that they provide to people on NDIS, yet you don't get that in other areas. So people who are veterans or people in other areas who require those services... They're not going to get them because they go to NDIS first, because NDIS pays a lot more money for it, even for nursing, registered nurses, all the rest of it. Their fees are too high. It has been ripped off by the providers and it needs a full investigation. So it's just not the criminals, Jake. It's the providers as well.
1: So Bill Shorten is the NDIS minister. Will you make representations to him?
2: Yes, I, I have. I've spoken briefly to Bill. Prior to the election, I came across him at the airport and um, he's actually, uh, I spoke to uh, Anthony Albanese, the Prime Minister, with regards to this. He said to to follow up with Bill, I've worked with not only the former ministers, uh, Stuart Roberts and Linda Reynolds with regards to this, but I've spoken on the floor of Parliament. I, they knew I was angry about the waste of monies here. They've really done nothing about it. It's increasing all the time. The whole thing needs a complete overhaul. You can't have doctors putting um, people onto the NDIS scheme without a thorough and insve- in, uh, you know investigation whether they are eligible for it. Yeah, people that's are right. It whether they're legitimate.
1: On. Yeah, whether they're legitimate. You're spot on. No, it's a worry, and it's a worry that we're just discovering this now. I mean, this scheme's been out for, for years. Um, so, look.
2: <laughs> years ago, about five years ago, Jake. That's right. I stepped down with them. At the time, they said it was going to cost $2 billion a year just for administration. Now we've got over five hundred and twenty or 30,000 people on it. It's costing us more than what Medicare costs for the whole of Australia. Go figure.
1: Yeah, Jesus. Well, look, uh, Senator Pauline Hanson, that's all we've got time for tonight. But thank you for joining me for agreeing to be on, even though Alan's away. And uh, look, keep on fighting.
2: Nick, it was my pleasure and congratulations. You did a fantastic job.
1: (laughs) Thank you. That's Senator Pauline Hanson, who will join Alan each Monday night. America. I don't profess to know the ins and outs of everything that is unfolding over there. I don't even really have an opinion on who is right and who is wrong when it comes to their politics. I just find it all chaotic. However, one thing I do know is that Donald Trump has a support base. You've got to give it to him. He boasts a huge support base which is energized and has a certain vision for America. Anyone who says otherwise is foolish. I don't think Joe Biden could boast the same achievement. The other thing I know about America especially with what happened the other day in relation to the FBI search in Trump's Florida residence, is that there seems to be one rule for those in the political establishment and another rule for those outside it. Trump for years has been outside it. So when his home is searched by the FBI, who were apparently looking for evidence that the 45th president had hidden official documents in contravention of the Presidential Records Act, it comes across as politically motivated. That is, if Trump is found guilty of willfully withholding sensitive government records, he'd be barred from running again for office. Yet when it was Hillary Clinton and some 30,000 missing emails which were deleted from her private email server, she says they weren't related to her role as Secretary of State, that's why they were deleted, well, the FBI just called it extremely careless. There was no public FBI search into any of Clinton's homes, But when it comes to Trump, oh yes, let's make a public spectacle out of it and get the TV crews there. Well, if it sounds like political intimidation and looks like political intimidation, it most probably is. The whole thing continues to be a moving feast. But is this seriously where the once great America is today? Where one side of politics goes into desperate overdrive trying to prevent someone from running again? If the Democrats are so sure they have great policy achievements under their belt and they've done a marvellous job in office, then what are they afraid of? After all, Biden is supposed to have won over 81 million votes, a record. But as November's midterm congressional elections approach, a Republican red wave is approaching. We are told that Republicans will certainly start counter-investigations into the Biden administration as soon as they seize control of Congress. In light of the FBI search on Trump's uh, Florida home, Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy declared, When Republicans take back the House, we will conduct immediate oversight of this department, follow the facts, and leave no stone unturned. Attorney General Garland, preserve your documents and clear your calendar. How's that for revenge? But it is sad that American politics has now turned into a partisan tug-of-war where the party in power is frothing at the mouth to prosecute the opposition, while American households and businesses are just put on the back burner and their issues are largely ignored. Where this all ends up, I have no idea. But when it comes to Trump, elites in the media and politics need to remember one thing. It's hard to beat a person who never gives up. So with that said, we continue to watch with interest. Well, being from northern New South Wales and therefore doing most things in Queensland, I'm always interested in what the latest is up there. And something which isn't going away is the fact that the Queensland Treasurer this year changed Queensland's coal royalty regime. The Queensland Treasurer, Cameron Dick, introduced this $1.2 billion hike in the rate of coal royalties despite saying prior to the Queensland state election in 2020 that he wouldn't introduce new taxes. He actually said at a press conference in Cairns, quote, there won't be any increased taxes. We have said that very clearly from the start. No new taxes from the Labor government if we are re-elected, unquote. Is it any wonder why people hate politicians? Now, not only has the Queensland government upset the coal industry, but they've also managed to upset the Japanese government. In a speech to the University of Queensland, Shingo Yamagami, warned some companies were already questioning if Queensland would continue to be the safe and predictable place to invest that they once knew. On Queensland's new royalty regime, Mr Yamagami said, quote, this will have a huge impact on mining companies as bottom line, including Japanese companies that have operated in Queensland for decades, unquote. An intervention like this from an ambassador over a state government policy would have to be pretty rare and shows the severity of such a decision. My next guest is the Queensland LNP Senator Matt Kenavan. He's always got a view or two on these things. Thanks for joining me Matt.
0: Good to be with you Jack.
1: Look I'm so amused by the fact that there are politicians out there who are fixated on ripping up the coal industry when it's the revenue we receive from coal exports which build our roads, our schools, our hospitals and dare I say funds the Social Welfare Bill. Matt, is that a pretty fair assessment?
0: Well, Jake, uh, the coal industry has been one of the big industries that's built uh, Queensland. Uh, uh, Before we had the big mining boom of the 60s and 70s, uh, Queensland was uh, a little bit perhaps um, behind the times, if you like. Uh, uh, It didn't have a big metropolitan city. Uh, I grew up uh, in Brisbane of the 1980s, and even then it was still sort of a... Uh, seen as a large country town. It's not that anymore, Uh, and a big part of that is because of industries like the coal industry, which are headquartered in Brisbane and don't just provide all those jobs underground or in a mine. Uh, There's also lots of jobs in big office towers working for big Japanese investment companies, uh, big mining companies, uh, lawyers, accountants, all these people have their jobs thanks to that industry. Now, to get an industry like that, you've got to attract lots of investment. And you do not do that by slapping on big new taxes. A tax is just a way of stopping business. That's, that's what right. it is. And particularly this tax, this is not, we all, we all recognise that we need to get a fair share of the wealth that's owned by all of us in our coal in our copper and all of these things. But this tax is 40% of revenues over $300 a tonne. 40% of revenues, not of profits, 40%. Of, uh, of just the straight revenue, and then they've got to pay corporate tax on top of that. So this is not a fair share, this is a highway, this is highway robbery. Uh, and that's why the Japanese government is so upset, because they have seen Queensland as a safe and predictable partner. They, they partnered with Joe B. peterson to build these mines and as I say, the 1960s and 70s. They powered Japan for half a century. But if we keep treating people like this, the next time they go to build a mine, they won't be coming here to Australia. They'll go, they'll go to Russia. Uh, they'll go to Southeast Asia, they'll go to Africa, uh, because we are coming right down to the pack here with decisions like this. Uh, we should be up, in front with our, up front with our business partners. This sort of cloak and dagger stuff from the Tricky Dick, uh, <laughs> Treasurer of Queensland, uh, is how we go back to being a third world country.
1: Well, that's right. And look, the Palaszczuk government seems set on punishing the coal industry uh, up in Queensland. And the last time I checked, Matt, there's an Olympic Games up there in 2032 and there's a lot of infrastructure that needs to be built, will solar panels and wind turbines replace the coal revenue?
0: No, it won't, Jake. And and you're right, the the budget's currently being funded on this, over $6 billion a year coming in from, thanks to coal, $1.5 billion from gas. Uh, But this is the... They're they're the golden eggs. You know, they're they're the legacy of the golden goose that was nurtured and raised many decades ago. And so this tax is not going to stop that uh, those golden eggs overnight. But if we keep this sort of rubbish up, uh, we won't have that golden goose anymore and we'll have to be borrowing money just to pay for basic things, let alone be able to put on an Olympic Games. We've got to get back in this country to doing productive things, doing stuff that people want, uh, not just things that we think uh, we, we, we desire. Uh, we've got to make things that, that like coal, like that people want. Like, we've got record prices of coal right now. And uh, recently the International Energy Agency looked at this and said... At these sort of coal prices, you would expect to see a big surge in investment in coal in Australia. Instead, we're not saying that, and a big part of that is because we've got governments like the Labor Party here in Queensland that don't welcome that investment, they don't support the coal industry, and therefore we're going to get fewer jobs in mining.
1: Well, that's right. And the power shortages we experienced on the east coast of Australia this year, I think acted as a wake-up call for many who have long advocated the closure of coal-fired power stations. Matt, I think the majority of Australians agree that we need cheap and reliable baseload power, but it's those in government who seem keen to keep up the renewable energy talk. Would that be correct?
0: Well, look, uh, there has been a surge of people thinking that renewable energy is clean and green. and So some politicians are just sheep just going along with that. They don't really know what they're doing. They certainly don't know how energy is made. There's another more nefarious element that are, are clearly uh, investing a lot or some people on the fringe of politics are investing a lot in renewable energy. They've got a lot of money at stake. So they're the biggest rent seekers going around this country right now and they're making those profits on the backs of the bills, the high power bills that you have to pay. Uh, But as you say, more and more people are waking up to this because we're a country with blessed with all of these energy resources. How was it this winter that we nearly had the lights go out? And the only reason we kept them on is because we actually paid factories to shut down. So, And that's going to come into your power bills later this year. The bill hasn't been all added up yet. But over these last few months when power was very tight, when they, uh, when this thing called winter came along, it was quite cold and dark at night, uh, we, 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 had to, we had lots of problems just keeping enough power in the system. So what happened was we went to smelters and refineries and said, hey, if we pay you this much money, will you shut the, the business off? They did that. And so this is the madness of the modern Australian economy. We are borrowing money from overseas, borrowing money from China to then then pay productive businesses not to produce the wealth that we need to pay that debt back and leave a legacy to our children that is not just debt.
1: Well, you just touched on something I was going to raise with you. This green transition seems to be a financial opportunity for those who are well off and invest heavily in it. The hardworking Australian is the loser and the eco-millionaire is the winner. How do we change this?
0: Well, we've got to we've got to we've got to get more sensible with the way we vote and demand a better option, especially those of you. Uh, who are viewing this that are either members of or supporters of the Liberal and National Parties, contact your local members of parliament, get involved in your local branches and say is enough, enough is enough. And at the next election, we need to offer an alternative, not an echo, to the Australian Labor Party. There are some in my own party that want to put up the white flag on this. They want to surrender uh, to those eco-billionaires and say, oh, the fight's too tough, they've got too much money, we just have to surrender the manufacturing jobs and industry of this country so we can win seats. Maybe, maybe it didn't work last election, but they're they're hoping where they failed once they'll succeed next time. Uh, I actually think we should fight. We should fight for what is right in our country. This is a great nation, as I say, blessed with so many natural resources. Get involved in politics. Get down to your local branch meeting. Give your local member a serve if they need it. Uh, and and tell them to wake up to themselves and put this country first, not just their political prospects at the ballot box.
1: Yep, that's right. Tell them to join the Labor Party. Um, Look, you just mentioned a point of difference. I know Peter Dutton says he'll conduct a review into advanced and next-generation nuclear technologies. I say forget the review. People are tired of reviews. There's plenty of evidence already which shows that small modular reactors are being adopted in other countries, and unlike old technology... They don't need to be placed next to a water catchment. This is the future, isn't it?
0: Absolutely, Jake. I mean, I moved in the last parliament to remove the ban on nuclear energy. I'll be doing the same in this parliament. I don't think we need any more reviews. The jury is in on this. Other nations are building nucle- nuclear power stations. We should have those as an option here too. But look, it is a there's a marathon, not a sprint here, to go to the next election, so there'll be plenty of time for that review to come back. And... Uh, inform whatever policies the coalition takes in the next election. There's time for that. And I'm happy with the progress that Peter Dutton has made in that regard. But keep in mind today, the United Kingdom has announced that they are going to build eight new nuclear power stations and they're not your small modular type. This is another thing I think we're getting tripped on here. We're all obsessed by these small modular reactors and I hope they take off, but there are no commercial ones just yet. We can build a a light water reactor uh, that have been built for 50 years safely today. So we shouldn't close off any options That's what's got us in this mess. We're in this mess because we decided to black man coal or or say no to gas and and totally not even consider nuclear. Let's keep all options on the table, light water reactors, small modular reactors, whatever we need uh, to deliver the results of cheap power to people and more jobs in manufacturing.
1: Yeah, that's right. We've got to do it fast, though, because I think, Matt, it's about, what, 10 years from go to woe in terms
0: of these uh Well, probably, probably. I mean, look, you know, this is... Yeah, well, the SMRs—that's true. That they, they, you know, the General Electric announced. Sorry, not Dow Chemical. Not Dow Chemical announced that they would install some General Electric uh, uh, or look to install some small modular reactors in 2030. Uh, that's their timeline they're working on. So they're probably many years away. And look, it would take a long time to build any nuclear power station because we do not have the industry, we do not have the supply chain. Uh, that's why we should do it now, uh, as soon as possible. Uh, to give that option to the future. And because of that time, I still think we've got to build a coal-fired power station too. We've got to do all of the above. Uh, we do not have eight to 10 years to wait for a nuclear power station to come along.
1: Well, that's right. And you just mentioned that we need to bring back manufacturing jobs. And I know people in the Labor Party say that, or actually, I think there's a, a there'd be a section now in the Labor Party who say, no, screw, screw manufacturing jobs, we've moved on. But the thing is, the only way to bring back manufacturing jobs, Matt, isn't it, uh, is if we have... Cheap, cheap energy. Cheap energy. Cheap energy, that's right. Reliable basal well, we power high wages.
0: Cheap. Yeah, we've got high wages in this country and I, I want that to continue. I don't want our wages to have to suffer or be reduced. And so the only way to have a successful manufacturing industry when you've got high wages is to have cheap energy so you can compete on that. We've got a choice. We can either have cheap energy or no jobs. That's the choice. And uh, with all the natural resources we've got, there is no reason we shouldn't be able to deliver energy cheaply. Some of the should be, we were, and should be again, have some of the cheapest power prices in the world. That will make us a magnet to invest, especially in heavy, intense manufacturing. We've got usually the resources to process those as well. I mean, I'll just leave you with this. There's, there's a lot of interest in, in green, so-called green minerals, like lithium uh, and cobalt and nickel. Uh, this stuff uh, is not particularly green in its manufacture, I can tell you that, but it goes into cars and batteries. But wouldn't it be good if we actually could process that stuff here and have those jobs, not just dig the rocks up and send them overseas? We should be aiming to have the manufacturing and the processing of those resources too, but we won't have that if we, unless we have cheap and affordable energy.
1: Well, I suspect many viewers tonight are agreeing with everything you're saying. So how a country like ours, which is rich in resources and minerals, has the world's most expensive electricity is nothing short of a disgrace and a failure of government policy. Matt, that's all we have time for tonight, but thanks for agreeing to come on the show. No worries, Jack. Have a good one, mate. That's Matt Kenavan, LNP Senator for Queensland. And before we go to Fred, Russia's invasion of Ukraine continues to drag on. Vladimir Putin hopes the Western world will lose interest. We mustn't. If Putin succeeds in Ukraine, China will absolutely make a move on Taiwan. Remember, President Xi has already virtually crushed civil liberties in Hong Kong. China's promise of one country, two systems, well, they're just now meaningless words. We saw what happened to pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong. President Xi is the most ambitious Chinese leader we've seen in decades. This November, he looks set to be given an unprecedented third term and will be crowned the People's Leader by CCP delegates. The CCP is also considering marking Xi's new rank with a formal portrait. If approved, it will be accompanied by the words, People's leader for a new era, Chairman Xi Jinping. He's not mucking around. Meanwhile, Joe Biden is falling off bicycles, losing his sunglasses, slipping on stairs, unable to put his blazer on without the help of his wife. It's just gaffe after gaffe, after Gaff, please, someone make it stop. So weak is Biden that for all of his bluster and volume and decibels over Mohammed bin Salman, pledging to treat Saudi Arabia as a pariah, Biden fist pumped the crowned prince on a recent trip. Useless? Hypocrite? Coward? You pick the word. Biden is an unfunny joke. Unfunny because he's presiding over the decline of the United States of America, making his country weaker by the day, while China and Russia become stronger. And now news that he's gearing up to announce his re-election bid in the months after November's mid-term congressional elections. Are you serious? But what has blossomed into a prosperous liberal democracy of 24 million people Taiwan now suffers from strategic ambiguity. That is, since the last standoff in 1995-96, America, China and Taiwan have only trafficked in vagueness and contradictions. In other words, there really is no deal or official position or understanding. It's up in the air. Hence why China, as it has grown rich, has nurtured the goal for unification with Taiwan by 2049. China's armed forces have been building the capacity to take the island by force. Its navy now has more ships than America's. Some generals in Washington think an invasion could occur in the next decade. This is where Greg Sheridan, when he spoke with Alan the other night, was spot on. In a world which is increasingly unstable and threatening, it is truly shocking that Australia's military capabilities have been neglected for so long by both sides of politics. China and others will no longer sit back and listen to preachy Western leaders. They have built up militaries and aren't afraid, it appears, to muscle up to us. Again, this is why Russia must be stopped soon. Well, that's all from me tonight. It was a real honour to fill in for Alan. I'm very much used to working behind the scenes on the show and growing this streaming service, ADH-TV, to be a home of sensible centre right opinions, news analysis, and talking the issues which affect you. I hope you enjoyed the show, and we hope Alan is back on deck tomorrow. Coming up is Fred Paul, who will take you into the next hour. Good night.